If you're tired of the superficial and you're craving real conversation about life, relationships, fears, doubts, and the divine in the middle of it, this is the place for you. My name is Anna Dimmel, and I'm a blogger, writer, and former pastor. And it's my passion to build bridges, not walls, through honest, real conversation and connection. And I want that for you. This is the show that will help you do that and give you not only inspiration and connection, but will help you leave the superficial for good and form the real connections you're craving. Your story matters, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Behind the Mirror podcast. I'm Anna Dimmel, and this week is an episode talking all about our dear friend in scripture, Lazarus. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Oh my goodness, this is one of my favorites so far, and I cannot wait to dig into this episode as we unravel so much of what God has said through this story, so much of what divine love speaks through this story, and so much of hope in a society that quickly labels people as unclean. I'm looking forward to getting into that. Before we do, I have to thank one of our patrons, Robert Arnau. Robert, I love you. You know I love you. I've had him on the show before. He is just a breath of light and joy, and he has been such a gift to me and to this podcast. He is a Patreon along with some other wonderful Patreons, and Rob, thank you so much for your support of this show. And if you are interested in being a Patreon of this show and supporting the work that we do here, I would love that. You can learn more about that by going to my website, justajesusfollower.com, and clicking on the button Patreon. Also, if you haven't connected with me on Facebook or Instagram or even email, I would love to connect with you. I would love to hear from you. Find me in all those places. I try to make myself pretty easy to find. You can get links to all of that, again, on my website. I love you guys so much, and I can't wait to get into this topic. So here we go. Hey there, welcome back to the podcast. Tonight I'm talking all about this lovely story in scripture about Lazarus. And if you grew up in church, or even if you were around the idea of biblical stories, this is probably one that you are familiar with. For me, the story always represented this majestic moment of Jesus declaring himself a miracle worker, the son of God. I mean, who else could raise a dead man out of a grave, right? So this story always held this this mystery and this amazement and wonder of the power of this Jesus character. You know, it's amazing how many of these stories, although now they seem so profoundly out there, like, what? Wait, what happened? But the older I get, the these stories still hold so much symbolism for me and they still carry so much um, mystery and weight and gravity. 
And this story in particular is one that's come to mind a lot in recent weeks. And I have gone back and forth a few times over this story and and what I'm trying to to glean from it now and look through the lens that I'm in life now and read this as. And it's amazing to me how much this story speaks to present day culture, to present day life. And if you've hung around this podcast a lot, you know when it comes to scripture, I like to read things in a very metaphorical context. I love I love the simplicity of a lot of these stories, and I think that there's beauty in that because it enables us to take away so many different um, angles that you can look at and glean from. And I think that that honestly is probably the purpose of a lot of these stories. In the Jewish tradition, the meat of a story was not beginning to end. The meat of the story was the in-between, what was in the middle. They would debate meanings of stories in the middle parts, and and the beginning and the end were kind of not a thing. It was always, no, what is happening in the middle? So I think when you look at, at stories like this in scripture, I think there's a reason that they're so kind of cut and dry. It's because it's meant for us to explore. So in exploring this story, I think you will see the beauty of how much this speaks to so much of what we as a culture, as a society, especially in this position in my life now where I'm at feeling kind of on the outside of things where I used to belong, how much this speaks to that. So I'm going to start by by reading the very first part of John. It's in chapter 11, and it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So it doesn't say in the text what Lazarus was sick with, but a lot of people have a theory that he was sick with leprosy. And if you've studied biblical ancient times at all, you know that leprosy was like the disease to be feared. And so I'm just going to, for the sake of the story, I'm going to run with that theme for a minute. So given that a lot of people believe that is what he was sick with, and this story kind of lines up with that theme, leprosy was the disease above all diseases of shame. If you were diagnosed or given the label of having leprosy, you were immediately looked at as unclean. And if you've seen any movies that are set in this time period where lepers are going about, that's usually what they they yell from afar, unclean, unclean, unclean. They had to say that because it was known they couldn't be around people. So if you got this disease, there were social consequences there were spiritual consequences, and there was the obvious physical physical consequence of the disease. So in this tradition, in this time period, they believed that if you had leprosy, that it was at God's doing, that you had done something so morally apprehensible that this was God's punishment, a curse from God, if you will, because of something that you had done. So when you were labeled with leprosy. Not only was it a terrifying death sentence, but it was a terrifying social sentence too, because 
Everyone looked at you as someone condemned by God. The social stigma was huge. Not only that, you were socially ostracized. You had to go live in a leper community and you could not be in contact with the general public. You were labeled instantly as unclean. And coincidentally, as I'm saying this out loud, I'm sure you're kind of feeling the gist of where I'm I'm going in my head with this. There is so much of a parallel here between society and spirituality and the religious law, quote unquote, because in the circles I come from, and I imagine many of the circles you come from, there are those, quote unquote, horrible sins or horrible walks of shame or horrible labels in the Christian or religious community that if you get titled or labeled as, you might as well be sent to a leper colony because by God, you are looked at as now condemned by God. Although people love to preach Jesus's redemption and love to preach that, oh, there's forgiveness and blah, blah, blah. But you know, sometimes things that we get labeled for as being quote unquote punished by God or seen as a social outcast aren't necessarily things you need to repent for. This is what Lazarus was going through. He couldn't help that this happened to him. He didn't do something to morally offend God. But they labeled him and saw him as that. And so when you were labeled as this, as a leper, you were immediately viewed as someone waiting their death. It was like the walking dead. You were now labeled a walking dead person. I remember when I first got divorced, how much my social circle instantly shifted from looking at me as someone that was respected and honored and um, worthy of hearing, worthy of being listened to, worthy of being a friend to, worthy of sharing responsibility with. And then I announced that my marriage is falling apart and that we are going through a divorce. And I might as well have been walking around with a poster board saying, unclean, unclean, unclean. Because as soon as I said the D word, as soon as I said the divorce word, I might as well have been completely out in a different community because my community didn't have space for that. It was almost like, oh my gosh, I mean, if she's getting divorced, I mean, what else is going on in her life? I mean, the divorce just doesn't happen to people. There's like underlying problems here. I remember a friend told me once that her Bible study that she was a part of, and mind you, I didn't even know the people really in this Bible study. They were like friends of friends of friends, but we all kind of knew of each other, but these were not close people to me by any means. But I heard that at their weekly Bible study that my name was brought up to be prayed for for my salvation because I was divorcing my husband. They didn't matter, you know, it didn't matter the context. It didn't matter that I was in an abusive home. It didn't matter that there was infidelity and domestic violence. None of that mattered. What mattered was I was now having to wear a label of divorce. And because of that, God must be so ashamed of me. And therefore, the religious community 
had to put a barrier between themselves and me. I was now on the prayer list. I was not going to be called to pray for anyone. I was now on the prayer list. I didn't ask for any of that, but that was a social context I found myself in. So many people go through things in life where you can't help the situation you're in. You can't change what's happened in life because let's face it, guys, life is messy. People are messy. As my mom says, life is complicated. And when you refuse to allow complications to play in to the storyline and you see things as they did in this story in this time period where, nope, no other, no other explanation. He has leprosy, walking dead, walking dead. He has leprosy, unclean, marked unclean. God's bad at him. Excommunicate now. That is what we're looking at in this story. How familiar does the story start to sound, right? But my favorite part about the entrance of the story is Jesus's wording here. Okay, so we know society says he's a goner. He's done for. These are Jesus's words. This sickness will not end in death. Wait, what? Like, people had to look at him like, have you lost your mind? Were you born yesterday? Do you not know what's going on here? He's going to die. <laughs> like, there, there's, no, there's no hope here. This guy's he's done for. And I cannot help but think what a precedent Jesus was setting when he said those words over this context, because this was a social situation just as much as it was a physical situation. And although Lazarus probably didn't offend God in any way, the society he was in made this a spiritual situation. They made a spiritual judgment call on Lazarus's salvation or Lazarus's standing with God. How quick people are to label things they are afraid of or label things they don't understand as God's punishment or God's testing or God's his repulseness towards something that you've done or something you are. How quickly society is to label things they don't understand as a death sentence, as, oh my gosh, your kid is gay. Okay, game over, done. Like, there is no hope. That is the worst thing ever. There's going to be no marriage, no grandbabies. It's, it's over. I mean, you might as well mourn the kid because they're dead to you. I mean, I have heard people say these things. And God bless you parents out there who have not responded to your children that way. But there are many that have been responded to that way. And you may even be listening and you might be a kid of someone who responded that way. You know what it feels like to be labeled as a walking dead person. My brother um, loves that show, The Walking Dead, by the way. And um, I, I watched it. I watched like three episodes of it. And I got to tell you guys, if any of you guys are fans, God bless you of that show, because those three episodes scarred me intensely. And I think I think I caught some episodes that were pretty, um, pretty graphic when it came to like stuff happening with kids. And I'm super sensitive to that. So I was like, tap me out. I can't watch this show. My brother swears if I would have watched it from the beginning, I would have loved it. But unfortunately, I, the episodes I saw, they scarred me. So not a fan here of The Walking Dead. However, 
when I read the story, that's kind of what I thought of. Like, almost like lepers were viewed that way. Like, let's build a fence between them and us. Let's not get too close because we could catch what they have. Don't hang out with that divorce lady over there because you might, you know, you might start considering leaving your husband. Don't hang out with the gay couple over there because you might catch the gay. Don't hang out with that person over there who we know, oh, they got a porn problem. You you don't want to catch that. How quickly do we label things that we don't understand? So much of society has always been this way. And this story speaks to that. Build a fence, build a wall, kill them before they kill you. And when we read this story, Jesus says, hey, yeah, that walking dead person, yeah, they're not going to end in death. He just like comes out of the gate with that, which I, I happen to just love because, I mean, I could just stop the story. I'm going to keep going. But if you just stop and pause, and absorb that, that thing that you were labeled as, divorced, gay, cheated on your spouse, whatever label you've gotten, let me just say, this doesn't have to end in death. Society around you will want to immediately say, dead man walking, no hope there, excommunicate, cut off, this ends in death. And some of us tend to take that on because we don't know any better, because we've grown up in societies that tell us, if this happens, that's the end for you. Do you know how long it took me to get over the fact that I'd been divorced twice? And I'm still working my way out of that rabbit hole, by the way, because, I mean, once I felt like, ooh, I might slip by. I I might just coast under the radar, but twice, good God, clearly. Clearly, there's something off here. Clearly, I've done something to bring this on myself. There's no hope for me. Dead man walking, right? Unclean, unclean. Like, I literally felt like every person that would ask me out on a date or what seemed interesting, I'm like, wait, 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 just so you know, been divorced twice. Like, just so you know, I'm just going to throw it out there unclean, unclean, proceed with caution. We red tape ourselves as though society is expecting us to do that, as though we are obligated to do that. When what Jesus is saying here is that, hey, this doesn't have to end in death. He won't die. Your life doesn't stop here. Speaking to myself, Anna, your life isn't over because you've been labeled with two divorces. This doesn't have to end in death. It's almost like a a misfire in your head sometimes because we... Although as much as we tend to, those of us on the outside I'm speaking for, tend to oppose the voices that push this way of thinking, we tend to do it too. Like we do it to ourselves just merely out of habit. And so this story is breaking that cycle. And that's, of course, why I've been thinking about it and why I had to start talking about it today. Okay. So moving on. When Jesus... He finally goes to where they have buried Lazarus. I am scooting forward in this story. And it says in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, of course, this is Mary, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. 
This verse stood out to me because I think, you know, we read stories where it says Jesus was moved with compassion. Um, That's not the wording that was used in this story. It says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. I looked up spirit and it's talking about this particular word they used here. It's talking about not just your spirit self, but your soul, your heart, your mind, that whole like deep spiritual place in ourselves. That's what it's talking about. He was moved and deeply troubled in his heart of hearts of souls of souls. This situation deeply moved and troubled Jesus. And we know how the story ends. We know he's not going to die. Like, well, he did die, but we know he's going to not stay dead, I should say. But yet, even Jesus knowing the outcome, when he gets to the tomb and there's grieving and there's weeping, yes, Jesus loved him and yes, he loved this family. But I think there's more to it than that. When we when we zoom out and we look at all the social context surrounding this story and you see the grief and you see the pain of the families who loved this person. You and I both know that when someone in a family or in a group is outcasted or labeled, they are given a death sentence. People assume that God is now against them and no longer for them. When that happens, it doesn't just affect that person. Those of us who've been kicked out on the outside or have felt the sting of that, we can sometimes forget that. Like we can sometimes be so caught up in how much this is hurting us. We forget that the people who loved us, being in the role that we were in, being in, say, the family, the marriage, the church, the pastoral position, the straight lifestyle, whatever it is that fits your context, people like you in that box. And when you are outcasted from it and you are labeled as dead and labeled as no longer coming back, there's a lot of grief. We don't really know how to grieve well. I I studied this when I wrote um, my book on forgiveness. I studied the whole process of grief back in Hebrew tradition versus what we now know as the cycle of grief currently. And in their culture, it was like an actual set time frame. Like they had mourners that would come and mourn and weep with you. They had a set time period of grieving. I think when Moses died, they set um, 90 days or something like that. It was like a genuine long time that they sat and grieved. Maybe it was 30. Don't quote me on that, but it was some, it was a long period of time. They grieved for him. It was the set period of grief. So these people know how to feel. They know how to process loss and they know how to process pain. We're not as accustomed to that. This is something we tend to stuff and busy our way through, but these people knew how to do this. And so when Jesus enters the scene, he enters into the scene where the grief is out there, where the family members affected by this sudden shift, this sudden change, this sudden death sentence, this loss, they're grieving because it's awful. This is something that I want to say to encourage you. I'm speaking to both sides here. You who have been outcasted, 
you who have felt the sting of this, as much as people may not show you that you're missed or may not speak to you in words that feel loving and kind, but instead they speak to you in anger or they shame you for whatever you're saying on Facebook or whatever you post on Twitter that day or whatever political party you are now supporting and they don't approve of, whatever it may be. And you feel the shame and you feel the anger of who you thought were former friends or family who loved you. I want you to know that anger is a sign of grief. And I want you to hear me that, and I'm saying this to both of us right now, the anger you're feeling is their grief. If they didn't care about you, and they didn't miss you, they wouldn't be trying to convince you and turn you back. Yes, there's the whole like convictionary part where they feel like they're being a missionary to you. There is that. But there is also a big human element here that we forget about. The human element is showed in this story. When you've been outcasted, when you've been removed, even if you removed yourself, there's grief because you're worthy of being grieved. Those who don't grieve well show it in anger. Or they stuff it all down and they become completely stoically cold. But in this story, we see someone who knows how to grieve well. We see Mary and she is weeping. She's weeping. Not only has she lost this person that she loves to death, to a disease, but she also lost the community's respect for him. She lost his legacy. Because now he's remembered as someone that God was mad at. He was remembered as unclean, someone to be staying away from. I cannot imagine if my brother got labeled that before he died. It would would wreck me. When we love, we love deep. And this story shows the other side of the outcast. It shows the humanity of the people still on the inside. The next passage we all know well. Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. In verse 35, the shortest verse, I think, in the whole book, Jesus wept. Again, Jesus knew that he wasn't dead forever. He knew how this was going to end. He even said it from the beginning, this will not end in death. The man knew. And yet, He wept. He grieved. Jesus grieved a man who was unfairly labeled as someone that God was angry at and being punished by. Jesus grieved a man who had to be outcasted from his family, outcasted from his society because of something he couldn't help. Jesus grieved because the last few Days, weeks, I'm not sure how long it took for him to die, but he had to go around saying unclean, unclean, unclean. And Jesus is like, no, you are not unclean. Stop labeling him as that. Stop labeling yourself as that. You are not unclean. Don't wear that. When it says that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, I think that that's why. This was not just someone sick and dying of natural causes. This was different. Leprosy was different. The social stigma, the spiritual yuckiness that came with it, the judgment, the condemnation, the exclusionary measures that they took, this was different. Jesus 
wept. Moving on in verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Jesus said, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for he's been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Might be one of my favorite parts in the story and let me tell you why. (laughs) It's important when I read, to me at least, when I read stories about Jesus, what he said was really important to me, but equally everything he didn't say. Same goes for what he did was important to me, but equally everything he didn't do. Jesus, superpower guy, right? He's about to raise someone from the dead. He's the son of God. Pretty sure he had some supernatural strength. Why didn't Jesus take away the stone? Why didn't Jesus just march up there, push over the stone and pull him out? He could have. He very well could have. I think there was something deeper happening here. It said before this, Jesus deeply moved again. This whole scenario was troubling him. I don't think he liked any of it. I don't think he liked the social consequences. I don't think he liked what they were blaming God for. I don't think he liked any of it. And not to mention Lazarus was his friend. They were picking on his friend. Jesus says, You move the stone. I'm imagining this stone was, I don't know, probably pretty heavy. I imagine that a grave tombstone was a significant size. I imagine it probably took some strength, some muscle to get it there in the first place. And Jesus was like, yeah, yeah, you guys who did this, you get to take it away now. I'm telling you, the poetic justice of this is fantastic because... This is how I continue to see God work. I continue, and you see this this message all throughout scripture and why this continues to not be focused on is beyond me. But Jesus loves, God loves, the divine loves, whatever label we're going to use for it. God loves taking the underdog and flipping the whole thing upside down. I mean, just look at how Jesus came. He came in a manger. Like, I mean, it it doesn't get any more bare bones than that. The weak become strong. The poor become rich. Like, this is the rhythm of God. This is the rhythm of the divine. And which is why, by the way, I love it. Jesus has always been in the margins. God has always been in the margins. I mean, look at the story of Hagar. Look, I mean, I could just go on and on and on. I love this. And so the irony here is that Jesus goes, <clears throat> okay, you guys, you know, you did this to him. You guys were, I'm sure, very, very secure in putting that stone there to make sure that leprosy wasn't going to be caught by anybody, even after he was dead. I'm sure of it. Now you get to take it away. Here you go. Jesus will always, always make a table for you in the presence of your enemies. Always. It's not always done in the way we think. Sometimes it takes many years. Sometimes it may take a lifetime. But I 
promise you, this is the rhythm of God. God delights in this kind of stuff. And I like to think that sometimes we don't even see it happening. I mean, Lazarus was dead when this happened, by the way. I'm sure he would have loved to have been like, wait, what? You're making them do that? Yay. Like, yeah, he didn't get to see it. I don't know that we always see it. But know that this stuff happens in the background. Always does. Okay. So Jesus, you guys, you take away the stone. They took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. I said that with a tone of sarcasm. I like to envision it with a tone of sarcasm because it kind of sounds like a tone of sarcasm. Um, A lot of things that I read Jesus saying sound a little bit sarcastic, which is partly why I love reading the stuff he said. I don't know how he said this prayer, but it it feels a little bit intentional. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. Is anybody else getting the sense that he's not thrilled with the people standing around him? He's not thrilled with the scene that he walked in on. And given the context of everything that we've been talking about, you almost feel this like righteous indignation, this righteous anger, like this is wrong. What happened here is wrong. Not the disease part. Lazarus couldn't help that. There are some things in life, you guys, that you can't help. There are some things in life that you don't bring on yourself. They just happen. There are some things you are born with. There are some situations that you fall into that get ugly and messy. There are some things in life that just happen because life is complicated. Jesus lived down here with all of us and all of our messiness and all the human existence and every painful, joyful thing that comes with it. And unfortunately, so much of our human existence involves stuff like this. God being blamed for things God didn't have anything to do with. People shaming other people for things they should never be shaming them for. People excommunicating other people just simply for things they don't understand and things that they fear. People's dignity and legacy being completely tarnished, again, over things and labels that are completely misunderstood. Because it's easy. It's easy to label and box and outcast things that we don't understand. Jesus was unhappy, and this lovely prayer that he gave was fantastic. Verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, not to Lazarus, mind you. Remember, he has not said one iota to Lazarus besides telling him to come out of the grave. He has been talking to these people the whole time. He says to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. If there could be a prophetic word, a prophetic sentence over so much of what I see in the Christian culture right now, it would be Jesus's words that say that. Take off 
their grave clothes and let them go, whoever the they is to you, whoever the other is to you, whoever you have labeled as unclean, whoever you have labeled basically because you don't understand, because it's something foreign to you, something you don't have context of, whatever you are labeling them as, they don't belong in the grave. This doesn't have to end in death. Take off the grave clothes that you put on them and let them go. So much weight lies in those words. So much heaviness and gravity lies in there. And I don't know how the people responded. I wish we knew, but that's where the story ends. This is the simplicity I'm talking about here. We could debate this. We could just like, oh, I don't know what happened after that. Why do you think the people responded? It, I don't know. It never says what the people's reaction was, except that I know in verse 45, it does talk about the plot to kill Jesus. When you move on in the rest of this um, chapter, it talks about the Jews being so angry at Jesus that Jesus practically goes into hiding to avoid being killed. So we know that they were not happy with Jesus's words. And I just want to tell you guys listening that when you choose to not join in in the labeling, when you choose to not join in in the outcasting, when you choose to not accept a death sentence that doesn't have to end in death, even though you may have been told that it has to, but Jesus is saying there can be another way. This doesn't have to end in death. When you take that road, you're going to piss people off. When you take that road, the majority inside that community of strict black and white box labeling people, there will be pushback. There will be anger. You have to expect that. But the beauty here is, though, is that we see modeled by Jesus this narrow, untraveled road that very few choose to walk down. I like this road. I've been on this road for a while now, and I slowly but surely keep finding myself back in the crowd and then pushed out of the crowd and back in the crowd and then pushed out. And I think I think now I'm I'm permanently out. But I I just hear these words and I feel like I'm in good company. I feel like we are in good company. Although it may be a bit of a wilderness and you may feel like there's not that many people around anymore because you're now in a community and you're labeled as unclean. Let me just say to you, don't label yourself as unclean because you don't have to. Just because society or your family or your former friends or even current friends say that you have to be marked as that, don't accept that label because God is not putting it on you. Don't say unclean and know and know that you don't have to stay in that grave. They may have put you in there. They may have labeled it. Shut the door. Let me just say that the divine, the most amazing, infinite ocean of love and grace and kindness and goodness and justice is standing on the other side saying, come on out. You're good. Take off the grave clothes. You don't have to wear them. Hold your head high and go. I will make sure that they let you go. 
Go in peace. Hey there, I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. You can find my blog and links to my Instagram and Facebook account on my website at justajesusfollower.com. I hope you join us next week for another raw, honest conversation. In the meantime, go in peace and know that you are enough.